0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Welcome to The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast. Here's your host, Jeff Nadeau. What's up, everybody? Buddy, and welcome in to another edition of The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast. Hope we're all having a great day, wherever you are. We are back with another episode, another show. I am your host, Jeff Nadu, And uh, this is episode 60, a big and momentous episode. Uh, we had episode 50 about 10 or so ago, and now we're already up to episode 60. Uh, before we get into the show, as always, make sure you give us a follow on Twitter, at the Down Seven. Also, if you want more great mafia content, this show just isn't enough. I urge you go check out us on YouTube. You can find us the sit down a mafia history podcast, little uh, bills to pay before we get going. And I did want to announce one show related note Um, after some consideration uh, going forward. Uh, I'm going to go at this alone, guys. Um, you know, I know check, we, we've we kind of been back and forth on what check's role is going to be with the show. And he just can't uh, continue to uh, give the time necessary for the show. We're still friends. We're still cool. But, uh, you know, for me, I, I got to move on without him. He's got a lot going on with his day job. And for me, um, that'll just mean you get a little bit more, uh, you know, guests and things of that nature. So what we'll do is, most weeks we'll do, just me. Uh, And as the show continues to grow, you know, we'll bring on a guest occasionally, whether it's Scott Bernstein or somebody else. Uh, But For the most part, the show is simple. We talk about one person every week and we move on to the next. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't go crazy. Um, This isn't a whole huge production every week. We've got our producer. We've got me and that's what matters. And look, when we do these shows, we want to make sure everyone has the full attention and for black chick he just has got a lot going on and that's okay uh maybe someday he'll return to the show we'll have to wait and see over the next month guys i do have some really cool things that i think are going to really benefit this show i'm taking on some new responsibilities hopefully here uh, over the next couple of months and uh, that'll mean good things the goal for this show has always been to get it to the highest level and we've obviously done the hard work now which is getting people to listen to it now it's really about growing it and making it the best mafia related show in the true crime genre so only we can do it without you so we urge you also if you know someone that might like this show make sure you tell them about it and uh keep growing the show so, today we got a good one planned for you. We're going to talk about the Carneglia brothers, John and Charles Carneglia. They were really the gaudy hitmen. Um, you know, Charles Carneglia is probably one of the most dangerous people in the history of the mafia that nobody talks about. We're also going to talk about his brother, John, who was really the brains of the operation, someone that uh, served a long prison sentence. And uh, we'll get into all that today. But I do want to start it off with a momentous occasion, it being our 60th edition. Um, You know, I get questions all the time about the Mafia, so every once in a while, I like to uh, address those comments and address those questions with a little thing we like to call a QA. and a So let's get into it. Let's answer some of your questions about the Mafia. I know there will be people that don't like the Q&A, they just want to get to the biography. However, uh, if you're listening to this and you just want to get to the biography, Keep in mind in the show notes, I included when this Q&A ends and when the biography starts. Uh, so let's get into it. Let's get into our Q&A, and then we'll get to John and Charles Carneglio. All right, first question. And I got to tell you, I glanced across these questions right as we started. There's some really, really good ones. Um, Darren Summers, who do you find to be the most credible ex-mafioso turned social media YouTube creator? Hard to know as most are feathering your own nest. Importance, etc. All right, so the most credible ex mafioso. Look, I've always said to me, the most credible informant that I've ever seen talk about the mafia to me was always Frank Colada from Chicago. I was always really fascinated by his conversations, I was always fascinated by his interviews. I always found him to be really contrite and credible. Uh, Didn't come across to me as a a liar at all. I'll be honest, um, the guy we talked to, to a couple of weeks ago, we He's not really on YouTube, but Frank Fiorino found him to be really contrite. Um, And I'll be honest, there's a guy, Anthony Aralada. He was part of uh, the Springfield uh, Genovese crew. Uh, I've always found him to be credible. I know some people might not agree with that, but I've always found him to be pretty contrite. So I would say for me, the most credible ex-mafioso to me, obviously they're all informants, but... uh, Number one would be Collada. Absolutely. And, and and Frank's passed on, but when he was alive, I always found him to be pretty interesting. Uh, Rocco, any truth to the rumor, Joey Merlino might be doing a gambling podcast in the near future. Yeah. So this was a, this was a big point of contention uh, last week, actually Um, this actually had come out on the Philly prime podcast. Uh, Dave Schratweiser and George Anastasia go give those guys a listen. They have a really good podcast. Well, at least Dave does. Um, they have a show called mob talk and Dave has a show kind of Philly centric where they talk about, you know, crime and guns and, you know, occasionally he'll have Anastasia. And on episode 69 of the show, Dave brought up an idea that he's heard. That's pretty credible that has to do with the possible Joey Merlino gambling show that's in the works. And here's all I'm going to say, Rocco. And whether you want to believe me or not, I'm not in the business of lying. Um, I've heard the same things. In fact, I know who's working on that. I know who's involved with it. I can't say much, um, but let's just say I have heard it to be pretty credible. Um, will it actually happen? We'll have to wait and see. But it's definitely something I've heard talked about. Uh, if you know anything about Joe, he is a, a someone that enjoys sports. know, obviously has a penchant for gambling. Um, you know, I think there are certain folks that maybe at one point were part of that life that are trying to say, okay, what do I do next? And, you know, Joe is a guy that will move the needle. He could get a lot of money for something like that. Um, and all they need is a good host to do it. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, is there truth to it? Absolutely. Um, have I heard it from my own mouth um, or, or from someone that I know? Absolutely. And Dave and George, I think, are, are, are on the money when they they've they've said that they've heard about it, because I have as well. All right. Um, Brian Waltney, Gualtney, that's an interesting last name. I hope I got it correct. He asks, has there ever been any major conflicts between the outlaw biker gangs and mafia families in the New York, New Jersey, or Philadelphia area? Um, not that many, uh, as far as I know. Um, the only recognizable one that I can remember uh, is years ago. Um, this was in the late '90s here in Philadelphia. There was an organization um, that had some relations with the mob here in Philadelphia. It was called the 10th and Oregon Crew, the 10th and O Gang, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They had gotten into a beef at one point in the nineties with the Pagan's motorcycle club. Um, there was an individual, Steve Montevergine, called him the gorilla. There was a beef uh, over some drug dealing and loan shark and turf. There was a scuffle between Pagan's and 10th and O guys at a bar called cookies on Oregon Avenue. Um, a guy, Louis Turr was killed. Um, and then this cat from, uh, cookies got beaten up There was a peace deal that was supposed to be Brokered between 10th and O And Gorilla with the Pagans The 10th and O gang had a guy That ran them called John Hendry um, They Kind of figured some things out Eventually though down the road The peace treaty blew up And was shot on Argon Avenue uh, Eight or ten times um, His mother lived down on Argon Avenue Around 11th and Argon And He was shot. Then Johnny Hendry got shot at, at, I believe the Argon Diner Um, and it was back and forth. Um, But that's the only known connections that I have or have heard of. There are some connections, I think in Jersey with, with certain just kind of drugs and things of that nature. Also, if you remember many years ago, Raymond Margarano, Long John, he was, uh, regularly selling uh, methamphetamine to certain motorcycle clubs. So is it a, is it a pronounced relationship? No, not that I know of. I know up in Canada, there are some connections and things like that, but I don't know of any pronounced connections between any currently. Uh, and I'm sure they've, they've had some, but none that I know of. Um, all right. Gavin Cook, uh, you and three made men are going on a vacation. You get to choose where. The activities you plan don't have to be mob related. Keep in mind you're on vacation and it's a break from work. Who do you take with you and why? Uh, I have to say, Gavin, this is a terrific question. All these questions so far are really good. This is a great one. Um, So for me, number one, I'd be remiss if I didn't say John Gotti. Um, The good thing about John, you know, likes the club. You know, good-looking guy, probably can attract the women. Um, I feel like it would be dapper and fun, and, you know, we could go bounce and things like that. I think he would be someone you'd have to take. Uh, He might talk a little too much, but there's nothing wrong with that on a vacation. Um, I would also bring Joe Watts. Um, Obviously, the good thing about Joe Watts was he made a lot of money. He could probably pay for a lot of things. And I have heard through the grapevine that whenever people were out with Joe Watts, they never paid. Um, So I'm definitely good with that. Plus, we have to also keep in mind Joe Watts, good-looking guy as well. Had a beautiful wife. I'm sure he could attract a nice female or a few females. Uh, plus, he can uh, be there for me if um, if we need him uh, to, to, to help us out with with the trash outside. If you know what I mean, we get we get into a beef with somebody, we can just sh- sick Joe Watts on them. Um, and my third guy, uh, Joey Messino. Uh, I would I would bring Joey Messino one because. I like the kind of camaraderie of this group. Obviously, Joey Messino and John Gotti were somewhat close at one point. And also, if you remember, Joey Messino was a cook. He owned a catering hall. Uh, He had a restaurant called Casablanca. Uh, So I could have to imagine, you know, he could get us to some nice restaurants. Um, And he was a traveler, as far as I know. So I'm sure he had some connections. Uh, Plus, if we ever needed a meal made, he could do it. Plus, I feel like Joey Messino was probably, you know, a good ornery guy, kind of a uh, a, a guy that you want around. So I'll go Joey Messino, John Gotti, and Joe Watts. Um, you know, I'd also consider maybe like a CMG and Kana. Um, Lucky, you know, how could you go wrong? Um, that's a great question, though. All right. Uh, Mr. Milkman, uh, as the mob policed a lot of their neighborhoods, do you think the streets are safe now or back in the 60s and 70s when the mob was at their peak? I remember seeing footage when Gotti went to jail. People were saying he was good for the community. Um, look, I've gotten into arguments with people about this before. Um, I don't think you can make any legitimate case that certain neighborhoods in New York were not safer when the mob was around. I, I think it's a foregone conclusion, quite frankly. You go to places like Gravesend and, and 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 Bensonhurst and you know Little Italy up in the Bronx and you know, certain parts of Queens, Ozone Park, Howard Beach, you know, places like that. I don't think there's any question. You don't think that Bergen, where the Bergen was, or where the Ravenite was in Manhattan, you don't think that was safe, a safe block? I mean, give me a break. You don't think Harlem or Tony Salerno patrolled, you think there was petty crime and drug dealings and stuff going on there? Absolutely not. Howard Beach, Ozone Park, they were safe when Gotti was around. It's that simple. And it's not just Gotti. It's the mob in general. You look at places like South Philly. You look at places like, you know, certain parts of Chicago, Detroit. They're definitely safer. The mob kept those places comfortable. You know, I remember a story many years ago that I believe was in the book Wise Guy, by Nick Pelleggi. He talked about a story in Canarsie, Brooklyn, when Paul Vario was running that area. Um, there, There was a woman that Named Teresa Ferrara, that was, I believe, was her name. I could be wrong, could be a dumb name, but she was followed into her home by a black, a black male. And within two minutes, there were people in the house. He tried to rape her, this guy. And the mob quickly ran in, figured it out, and that was that. You know, petty crimes, things going on, you know, petty drug dealing and, and drug addict. It wasn't it, it wasn't a thing in those areas. They were definitely safer. I bet if we went back and pulled the the crime reports out of those neighborhoods in particular, I guarantee they were lower than some other ones. Do I think New York would be different if the mob were around today? Probably. Probably a little bit different. It's a good question. Now, also, we have to remember the bad things the mob did. Extortion, you know, uh, murders, things of that nature. So did it even out? Maybe. Chris, who was the snitch that informed on John Gotti using the apartment upstairs from the Ravenite? Was Gotti potentially informing for longer than he had let on? I don't think so, but worth bringing up. Um, There was no informant. Uh, The feds did a great job at figuring out um, that there was something going on above the Ravenite. They had noticed that a woman called Mrs. Cirilli lived up there. She had a husband that had been connected with the Gambino crime family many years before, the owner of the building was an individual named Joe LaFort, Joe the cat, big earner for the Gotti family and for the Gambino family in general, made a ton of money in real estate. Um, but the feds did their due diligence, figured out that, you know, they were probably doing business upstairs. And I know when I talk with John Gleason, if you read the book, um, The Gotti uh, Wars, um, the book by John Gleason, I had him on a couple of weeks ago. They actually talk about that at length uh, when the FBI went to um, Gleason about all that. And he, had, he, had, he was fascinated. He would sit there and just listen to it. Um, there was no snitch. Um, there were some informants in the family. A guy, Tony R- uh, Rampino, was a cooperator at one point, but he didn't give them anything about the Ravenite. The feds figured that out on their own um ted sizem what were the relationships between the italian mafia and one percenters uh, we already talked about that i kind of snuck in interesting two questions about the same thing uh jenna i'd be really interested in hearing about the lebanese middle eastern mafia um you know interesting question i don't know of any known lebanese lebanese mob in america um the only middle eastern mob that i know about would be the chaldean mob um uh, and if you know anything about uh Assyrians that's who Chaldeans are they're very big in Detroit uh, my friend Scott Bernstein has done some really good work on the Chaldean uh crime families and things of that nature I know they're big out in California as well um there are other mobs as well I mean keep in mind um there 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 are groups you know not that Armenia is in the Middle East but the Middle East uh Mostly the one, the stuff that I know of would be the groups tracing the roots kind of back to to, uh, to Iraq with the Chaldeans. Um, And as I said, they're pretty big in Michigan, California, Illinois, places like that, out in Phoenix. Um, So I would look into that, uh, Jenna, or get in touch with Scott Bernstein. He does a lot of work with uh, on the Chaldean stuff.
0: Facebook is building tools to enhance safety and security. Over 40 million people are using Facebook's privacy checkup each month. That's nearly 60 times the population of Washington, D.C. Learn more about the work ahead at facebook.com forward slash action. All
1: right. Anthony Flores, what is the current state of the mafia, leaders, territories, etc.? Um, so I've talked about this like a lot um, I might do a show on this down the road, kind of outlining it. Um, I'll do that in a couple of weeks, Anthony. So just stand by. Um, that would take too long to kind of go through. Um, but but stay tuned. Maybe we'll do something down the road here. Uh, Paul Olick, one. Do you think the five families rather than one big mob family hindered or lessened the chance of violent murders, paragraphs within the mafia? Or did it make them more common? Um, do I think the... F- I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, Look, there's always going to be issues. There's always going to be murders. There's always going to be violence. Um, If it had been one family probably would have been worse. I think the five families definitely hindered it due to the fact that there was a commission and, you know, treaties and and peace was a little bit more normal. People wanted to work together as opposed to against each other. But um, you're always going to have violence and power grabs and things like that. And what the commission did is if there was a power grab and. You know, they would kind of isolate themselves from that particular family and kind of stay away. So, yeah, I think it definitely uh, lessened the chance of violence. But I I don't know. One big family, I think, would have been a complete mess. Because if you look at most of the power grabs and wars, I mean, they're within the same families, whether it's the Columbo's or whatever. It's not often that other families really war against each other. It's usually inner issues, you know. So that's a good question, actually. I, I didn't quite know where you were going with that initially, but it actually ended up being a pretty good one. Dumplin says, I'd like to learn more about the Takavikanti family. Um, and he didn't really follow it up with a specific question, so maybe you can get in touch with me, and, and maybe we'll do it on a further one down the road. Uh, Dizzle, are you ever going to do a show in the Montreal mob? Um, you know, I get questions about Canada a lot, You know, whether it's Hamilton, Montreal, uh, you know, Toronto, different areas. Um, I wouldn't say that's my forte in, in mob stuff. I'm more of an American and Italian uh, fan as far as uh, the mob's concerned. Um, not that they're not all Italian, but uh, I don't know, maybe we'll do some stories on on YouTube about it. Um, probably gonna do a Vito Rizzuto show at some point, but um, I have so many kind of just American mafia folks to do, um, but I'm sure we'll do something at some point. Uh, Eric Anthony, I read a book that Sammy Gravano and Gaspar Caso had a relationship with each other in the drug business. To your knowledge, do you know if there was any truth to that? Um, I'm sure you read it in um, the book about Anthony Caso. As far as a relationship between them, I would have had to have thought there'd be something. Um, I mean, of of course there probably was. I mean, I know at one point they they moved around in the drug game. Um, Do I know of any legitimate relationship? I mean, I've seen them on um, surveillance and stuff, so I, I would have to think there was some sort of connection. I'm, I'm sure they definitely met at some points. I mean, there if you you could just search Sammy Gravano and Anthony Casso, and you'll find uh, still shots of them on a walk and talk. Um, they're from the same area, basically South Brooklyn. So I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure they definitely moved around. Um, absolutely. All right. Um, Politics 101. I'm really interested in the history of the Copacabana in New York City. Who was Jules connected to? Um, so you're talking about Jules Padell, I would think. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know what politics is talking about, the Copacabana was a nightclub in Manhattan that really catered to mobsters. If you've ever seen Goodfellas, Henry Hill takes uh, Karen Hill to, to the Copa. Um, Frank Costello actually had a silent interest in the Copacabana. He was a investor, a financer, and a partner, and silently he put an individual named Jules Padell in control of the restaurant and everything and there was also a guy that kind of worked in the middle, an individual called Monty Prosser. Prosser was an English guy that had a connection to Frank, and he actually would get into volatile issues with jules padel pretty frequently um and look they would build it up to a very high-end uh business um but if you i remember reading about this a while ago where prosser had kind of this you know prota- he was kind of the antagonist um and 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 padel was kind of the protagonist it was a, it was an interesting relationship as far as much history i don't know a ton about it I know it was a haven for for mobsters. I know Sonny Franzese was someone that would go there a lot. A lot of mobsters loved the Copa. Um, I think there's a book um, or some sort of blog about it. I, I would urge you to just look into it. Um, but yeah, um, Frank Costello was the one that that put Padel in control of of, of the Copa. All right. Uh, Lost 085. Do you think Sammy Gravano would have made a good boss if he hadn't whacked John Gotti rather than turned informant? Uh, Do I think he would have made a good boss? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I mean, he was an earner. Absolutely. I think he was able to lead. Um, You know, I never looked at Gravano as the true leader. Um, I don't know if he had that in him, I think he could have did it. Probably. I would have probably thought that if Frankie DiCicco didn't get killed. So let's say Gotti would have been killed in the, the bomb blast. I think Frankie DiCicco may have been boss. You make Sammy under and Failure Consigliere, I think that would have worked perfectly, Um, or or mixed match of the of the three. Yeah, I think he would have been a good boss. I think he'd have been a better boss than John. Um, Absolutely, Um, that's a that's a good question. It's one that I pondered before. Um, You often wonder, and we we mentioned this during the failure episode. You know, what would have happened if the Gotti name never existed? And what would the Gambino family have looked like? Probably would have been the strongest family in the history of the mob. Um, John did a number on it. Craig 65. Why are women bosses accepted in Italy and Sicily, but not here? You would think it would be the other way around. Um, Because in Italy, obviously in any Italian family, the mother is the patriarch. The mother is very respected, very um, much people are loyal to their own mother and they're loyal to women. You don't badmouth a woman. Um, you know here it's almost accepted that people do that, over there it's not. Uh, and it actually's been proven that under women leadership, uh, the mob has been more effective. There was a woman that had a clan in Naples called Maria Lacchardi and she ran a lot of Naples and they actually did a study on it I believe in the early 2000s about Ability of leadership and it was actually quite more quite more effective um why they don't do it here that's a good question they do a lot of things in Italy they wouldn't do here and as I've said before you know groups like the Camorra are not a mafia they're more of a group a drug gang to me the way they operate uh, at least at this point obviously they're Italian and people just call them the mafia and obviously I have no problem if you do it too but you know they're run different um why it doesn't catch on here? I don't know. I guess because over here we don't respect women as much. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't answer that. I guess it's just not accepted. They don't really do like making ceremonies there. You know, maybe certain groups do, but like the Kimura doesn't. Jim Madera, do you consider Microfrenzies a rat even though nobody went to jail because of him? Um, that's not true. Um, several people went to jail because of Microfrenzies, And also, in fact, um, in that Gotti Wars book as well, they actually come out and say that he was an informant. Uh, Sammy Gravano wanted a similar deal. Michael Franzese was under something where he would only have to cooperate for one year. And after that one year, he wouldn't have to cooperate anymore. He put an individual named Norby Walters in prison. He sat down with the government. And that's the thing about the mob, Jim. In the old days, really up until the 90s, accepting and even sitting with the government was a rat move. Mentioning you were in the mafia was a rat move. Even considering that the mob existed was a rat move. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, I know he doesn't think he tries to generalize what he did, um, but no, he definitely is, and the government looks at him as one as well. Listen, Jim, you don't get away with stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from the government and doing a couple of years and keeping a lot of your money. Like it just doesn't work like that. Um, there was a backyard deal.
0: No purchase necessary.
1: Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's very similar to Junior Gotti. I've talked before about this. Junior Gotti sat down with the government. Why was he sitting down with the government? What was the goal of that meeting? He mentioned certain names. Um, and, and and you know, that's a rat move, regardless of who went to jail or not. Um, I know we've tried to generalize and move the goalposts on what an informant rat is, but I'm just answering your question. Do I consider him one? Yes. I think anyone that has a valid brain, uh, would agree with that. NNT 631, if you were a made guy, what decade would you want to be active in? Um, I've answered this question in the past. I would probably say the seventies or eighties, um, seemed like then the mob was most, uh, high end, a lot of union infiltration, things like that. Um, plus if I could work for anyone, it would probably be, uh, Tony Salerno. So yeah, I think, uh, I think absolutely. Uh, I I would say the 70s or 80s. Uh, One final question from Crystal Emerson. We'll save the best for last. Uh, She says, how do you feel about the passing of the legend Ray Liotta? Goodfellas is one of my all time favorite films. So I'm just curious. I love the show. Keep the episodes coming. Thank you so much, Crystal. You're very kind. I appreciate you joining us. I believe uh, I've seen you. Yeah, you're in California. That's right. Um, I thank you for listening. You're very kind. Um, so my thoughts on Ray Liotta, it was definitely a loss. I was going to mention that here today. Um, Ray Liotta has been in some terrific films. Obviously we remember Goodfellas for his vital role as Henry Hill. Um, that's what most people remember him from. Um, but he had done a lot of other really great pictures as well. Um, he was in obviously Field of Dreams, which is a, was a terrific film. Um, Blow, I thought his um, role as George Young's father was fantastic. I I really enjoyed him in that film. Um, He was in a movie Killing Them Softly. It was very good. Most recently, he was in Many Saints of Newark. I remember he was in Grand Theft Auto. He had a a voice in that uh, video game many years ago. Um, Just a guy that's been in all sorts of things Um, and, and was a terrific actor. Uh, He definitely died way too early. Interestingly enough, mob wise, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but he actually played Roy DeMayo in a film called The Iceman, uh, which, look, I've talked about before. I mean, Richard Kuklinski's story is bullshit. uh, Never happened. Um, But he was in that. He played Roy DeMayo, weirdly enough. And Michael Shannon played Richard Kuklinski. Michael Shannon was actually in Boardwalk Empire. He played the uh, treasury agent that ends up becoming a hitman for uh, Al Capone. So kind of interesting. But um, yeah, it, it was a sad uh, news to hear. He was pretty young, only sixty seven. But I always remember the quotes he had in in Blow uh, when 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 he kind of sees. George for the last time, or he has the, the tape for the last time, you know, where George has to go to jail, and his dad's on his deathbed, and it's um, really good movie. I loved him in that. I thought it was really good, uh, but I'm glad you brought up um, Mr. Leota. May he rest in peace. Uh, thanks, everybody, for the great questions. I appreciate you all uh, for submitting them. This might have been the best round of questions we have had as of yet, so uh, good for you, all of you. Uh, all right, guys, let's get into John and Charles Carneglia. Obviously, this is the first duo we're going to do on the show. What I'm going to kind of do is I'm going to talk about John first. He's older by one year. Uh, so we'll talk about John and then we'll kind of kind of meld Charlie into the whole thing. Kind of different guys, but ultimately had a huge role in the Gambino crime family. And you ended up really kind of being the chief executioners for uh, John Gotti, most notably Charles Carniglia. John Carniglia was born in 1945 in Ozone Park, Queens. As we know, Ozone Park was a mob breeding ground. And Charles was born one year after in 1946. Um, Early in the life, they would actually run around and and, and kind of run the streets just like any young kids would do. Um, Their mother actually at one point, um acquired a junkyard that they would actually run with their mother uh really throughout most of their criminal career um they would also eventually purchase a building at 834 pine street uh, in brooklyn and they kind of would move a lot of their operation to east new york now for anyone that doesn't know the geography of east new york and ozone park they're very close to each other um you know they're similar neighborhoods ones in brooklyn ones in queens um they would actually use the junkyard in their early life, in their 20s, as a chop shop. That's where they would steal cars, uh, sell parts, and ultimately sell large amounts of drugs, whether it be cocaine, marijuana, uh, et cetera. This would also be where they would store huge bushels of marijuana. Um, it's really where they did all their distribution uh, and the stuff that they did. And this would also be, ultimately be where they would take corpses and dismember them and things of that nature. Similar to um, the Gemini Lounge for Roy DeMeo. Um, in 1972, as we know, the Gambino crime family is, is under a change, at least in Brooklyn. Uh, big time capo Carmen Fatico would actually move uh, to Ozone Park. Uh, and that's where his big operation was, was taken from East New York. And, That would be a big foray for them because Carmen Fatico was a legend. He had a lot of powerful people around him, particularly John Gotti, Ruggiano, all these different people. And they wanted to go to Ozone Park because it was very close to JFK, which, as we know, whether it was Vario or, or whoever, they all were very big in hijacking at JFK. So it was big having the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club right in Ozone Park in the early years for the Coniglas, they started kind of running around, eventually would meet people like John Gotti. uh, And John Conigla would particularly become close with Jeannie Gotti. Uh, They would sell a lot of drugs, and we'll kind of get to how that all would end and and what would all happen. But John was really the smart guy of the the group um, with with the brothers. He was smart. He was savvy. He was a family man, had a wife, had children, um, kind of that neighborhood guy, right? You know, a guy that you know, w- was home for dinner. Um, interestingly enough, um, during the 70s, he would go out one day to his pool area and he would discover that a kid was living in his pool house, sleeping, uh, some sort of transient uh, kid. Uh, he would find out that the individual, Kevin McMahon, was isolated from his family. He'd be getting in some trouble. His family kicked him out. And slowly but surely, John... Basically, starts acting as as a surrogate foster father to him, uh, and and takes him in, uh, and, that, and that was something that would end up really haunting the Carneglia's late in life, which we'll get to. Um, But he did his good deed, John Carneglia, and that's the kind of guy he was. Eventually, his brother Charlie, we get close to the kid as well, and kind of act as as his heir apparent when when John goes away. Uh, in 1980, as we know, John Gotti's youngest son, Frank, would actually die in an auto accident. If you remember, uh, he's hit by a car on a mini bike. A lot of people have contacted me, and I did actually not, I actually didn't know this, but according to them, they would say that the individual that gave the young Gotti Uh, Frankie Gotti the mini bike that day to ride around was Kevin McMahon I have not been able to absolutely confirm that but I have heard that through um, through certain folks that that would know Uh, according to some information that I was able to obtain so what happened was obviously Gotti's son dies initially John looks at it as an accident tells his wife it's an accident Eventually, he would take this miraculous trip to Fort Lauderdale. And John Favar, the individual that did this accident, uh, would ultimately be abducted um, from a parking lot in New Hyde Park, Long Island. He would be abducted from a parking lot by an individual named Iggy Alonia, Richard Gomes, and John Carniglia. They'd throw him into the back of a pickup uh, van Uh, After they were hit, they hit him in the head with a piece of wood. They would shoot him in the van and drop him off in Brooklyn at 834 Pine Street, the building that the Carnegie is owned. They would then take the body, dump it in a barrel uh, of acid, and throw it off Sheepshed Bay. That would happen in July of 1980. Now, how we know this? According to an attempted proffer session that Richard Gomes would have. Now, Richard Gomes was part of this hit. Gomes was from Rhode Island. He had been connected with Gotti for many years through Raymond Patriarchy. He was a loyalist to Gotti. He had at one point considered cooperating, gave some info and then decided he wasn't going to cooperate. But that came straight from him. So John Corniglia, really early in his life, you figure, um, you know, he's, I mean, in 1980, he's about 35 years old. He's taking on these major hits for, Someone in Gotti who is a captain. Uh, he's a higher up at this point. Um, and at the end of the day, whether it's sad that Frankie Gotti died, absolutely. Um, we have to remember, though, it was an accident. Um, John Favara was never discovered uh, and hasn't been to this day. Um, and that was the real kind of big hit that John Carneglia w- was involved in. He would also be very integral in another very important hit, one of uh, another family. As we know, in 81, the Bonanno crime family has a power grab. Uh, the three Capos, uh, Dominic Trinchera, Alfonso Delicato, and Philip Gianconi, try to take over the family. Joe Messino has three Capos killed. Johnny Carnigli would actually act as um, the person that would get rid of the bodies. They would take uh, all the bodies to the shop in Brooklyn and then to a vacant lot in Queens. Um, eventually those bodies would be discovered discovered many years later, but Carnegie was being given these very important jobs to complete. Uh, and obviously during all this, he was not only uh, very integral in, in, in getting rid of bodies, but he was also killing people. He was selling drugs. He was earning. He was a very important person in the family. Now, um, as we know, in 85, we're not going to go through and rehash the Paul Castellano hit. We all know that on December 16th, 85, Paul Castellano is is murdered in front of Sparks. If we remember back to that episode where we talked about this murder, Johnny Corniglia was actually the chief executioner of Paul Castellano that night. He was handpicked by Gotti and Gravano to be the individual that walks out of the awning underneath sparks and shoots Castellano. Obviously alongside him was Vinnie Artuso. The other shooters that killed Bilotti, Sal Eddie Lino. Now, as we talked about in that episode, Carniglia ended up being the only gunman to actually shoot Castellano. Artuso's gun would jam and Carniglia would have to finish him off himself. Um, now, to this day, no one has ever been charged with that crime. Um, but people would, would would venture to believe that Carnegie was the man that did it. Now, there's no evidence of that, uh, at least according to the police. But it's kind of one of those things that the streets kind of know. I want to kind of get, though, to some things that would happen during all this. Before this hit in, in 85, in 1983, John Carnegie was actually indicted uh, alongside John Gotti uh, on a case, um, they would end up ultimately getting a mistrial for jury tampering. Um, and, and this would kind of be something that they would kind of rehash down the road. Um, there would be another case where they were, he would get indicted with Gene Gotti. And this is something he would ultimately have to face. Um, the original case that they had in the 83 had to do with loan sharking, illegal gambling, murder, all sorts of stuff. Um, they would eventually be retried again for that case in early 1987. Gotti, alongside Carneglia beat the rap. So he had beaten the government twice. Um, and it's funny because outside the courtroom that day, Corniglia would tell the media, quote, to tell the FBI, you get your 20 toughest guys, I'll do the same, and we'll settle this once and for all outside the courtroom. Um, definitely kind of witty, right? Later in 87, they would have to go to court again. This time, Carnegie goes to court with Jeannie Gotti, and they go on trial uh, for narcotics trafficking and all sorts of narcotics enterprise stuff, racketeering, all that sort of thing. Um, he would beat the rap, um, obviously, like I said before, uh, but he wouldn't beat it Uh the third time on May 23rd, 1989, in his third trial on the 83 charges, John Carnigley, after jury mistrials, witness tampering, all sorts of things, he's convicted of running a heroin distribution ring. On July 7, 1989, Carnigley gets 50 years in federal prison, $75,000 fine. Genie Gotti gets it as well. If we remember, the feds would kind of figure all this out through bugging a pink phone in the daughter's room of Angelo Ruggiero. Now, Ruggiero would die, and he wouldn't have to go to jail for this, but Genie Gotti and Carniglia get, get a deep prison sentence. And years later, John Carniglia would actually write home in 1990 and tell his family that if he'd originally taken a plea in the case, he was going to get seven years. He ended up not taking the plea, um, and he ended up serving about 30 years in prison because of it. Um, John Carnegie was actually released in 2018, um, and he is currently 77 years old. Um, what he does now is none of my business. I'd have to imagine he's really just living out the rest of his life in relative anonymity, um, Now, his brother, Charles Carniglia, would have a different rise and fall. Um, Obviously, as I mentioned, Carniglia Charlie was a lot more wild. Uh, He was a deviant. He was a drug addict. He was a drunk. Um, Now, I have talked to Chad Marks, who we've had on the show. He knew Charles Carniglia in prison told me that Carniglia was definitely imposing. He wasn't, he was funny at times. He was a little brash. He hated the government, uh, had a big beard. Um, but we'll get into kind of the, the lunatic that, that he obviously was. Um, I w- want to kind of go back and, and, and kind of start at the beginning with him, at least in his criminal years. Carniglia killed a lot of people as well. Uh, as did his brother uh, which we kind of got into but Charlie's still on the street at this point and I want to kind of go back to where it started with him he had originally been involved in several murders um, really at the beginning of all his life way back in 1976 he was actually initially involved in a case of allegedly killing an individual named Albert Gelb, who was a court officer. I guess he was supposed to testify against Carniglia. Carniglia got him outside of a a Queen's diner. He was also arrested um, or or not arrested, but he was also implicated in two other murders. um, One of which was uh, an individual that, um, an individual, Michael Catillo in 1977, who, was the nephew of Nicky Carazzo. They got no beef. There was kind of a war brewing and and Catillo I guess disrespected Carniglia in some way and he was allegedly someone that killed him. Also a guy Salvatore Puma was killed by Carniglia allegedly. Um but once John goes away, Carniglia Charlie starts hanging around Kevin. Man, they start doing pieces of work, they start doing things. Um And he becomes kind of a riser, Charlie does. He is earning, he's selling drugs, he's killing people on behalf of the Gotti organization. Um, In 1990, Charles Carnegie would actually attempt to pull off an armored car heist uh, at JFK airport. He would ultimately end up making away with about $65,000, but he would actually kill a security guard called Jose Delgado Rivera, another case of an innocent, hardworking man killed by a member of the mafia. Um, he also had to kind of realize John Gotti had by this point been arrested. And he would start kind of pounding around with John Gotti Jr. Uh, there are many um, photos of the two pounding around and, and doing things. Um, he would kind of almost act as As a very high up individual in the family uh, with John Jr. In 1990, according to the federal government, an individual named Louis De Bono needed to be killed. Gotti Sr., this would happen right before he was arrested. He had instructed uh, members of his family to kill Louis De Bono because he didn't come and meet him when he was supposed to. Uh, they would lure uh, De Bono, meaning Corniglia, McMahon, Bobby Borriello, and several others. They would involve McMahon to lure him and drive them to a parking garage at the bottom of the World Trade Center where they killed Louis De Bono. So kind of add this up. This is five murders that Corniglia has allegedly committed. Um, and this is what really got at least Charlie Carnegie really indebted to the mob. He had killed you know, people in the street that maybe he had gotten into beefs with. But like his brother, he had been involved in a major hit. He had killed someone that needed to go. Um, and, you know, again, he was making a lot of money selling drugs and doing bookmaking and all sorts of other things. Um, we wouldn't really hear much about Charlie Corniglia for a lot of time. He was just a regular member of the family. Obviously, John Gotti Jr. would go through his many trials. And in 2008, a huge indictment would come down uh, involving the Gambino crime family. Charles Corniglia alongside uh, people like Frank Cali, Dom Cefalu, Jojo and Nick Carrazzo, Jackie Knows D'Amico, Lenny DiMaria, Richard Vinigotti, all those guys, uh, all got arrested um and this would be where Charles Carnegie would have to face the music remember by this point he had killed um you know five or so people if not more his brother had killed many people now his brother ended up lucking out not going to prison because you know at least not for killing anyone um but he was going to do a long time and and this was going to be where um Charles would have to face the music as well. This this was a huge indictment. This had about 50 people uh, inside the Gambino crime family. Ultimately, the witnesses in this case would be an individual named John A. Light, and then Kevin McMahon, who was named in this case. Uh, He was a um, part of the indictment. He obviously had a murder under his belt. He was part of the Louis de Bono hit, and he decided to flip against his adopted uncle, um, and really go against the only family he had known. The charges were so serious against Korniglia that he was not offered a plea deal. Um, He would ultimately be convicted uh, of the murders in this case and would get life in prison. Uh, And he is uh, actually still alive. Both of these brothers are still alive. Um, Charles Corniglia today is... Uh, 75 years old and he is at uh, USP Cannon in Pennsylvania. He's an old man. I have to imagine soon he will be hauled off to one of the federal medical centers where he will die in prison. John and Charles Carnegie murdered double digit people for the Gambino crime family. Obviously, we bring up people like Roy De Mayo and and guys like that from the Gambino family who were incredibly dangerous. Um, But the truth of the matter is, these two individuals were probably, outside of Joe Watts and Roy DeMeo, the most lethal people in the history of Cosa Nostra, at least in the Gambino crime family. Um, It's just that simple. They had different beings. They were different people. They sold a lot of drugs. One was a bit smart. One was a bit more brash and kind of a lunatic. but they both had one thing they were good at, and that was killing people. So you look at John. He kills Paul Castellano. He kills John Favara, allegedly. Um, you know, He kills people and did big pieces of work. He made a lot of money as far as earning was concerned. You look at Charlie. Did really well as well. Killed a lot of people. Took care of ends that needed to be taken care of. I want to end the Carnegie talk with kind of the fact that they're both still alive. They have pretty good genes, but I want to end this with an excerpt that came from a book called the Sinatra club. Now I want to make this clear. The individual that says it, Sal Palizzi, he's the author of the book. He was a Gambino associate. Everything informants tell you, you have to take with a grain of salt. Um, he would have an interesting point that he would make about John Cornig- or sorry about Charlie Corniglia. He would say, quote, John Corniglia was OK, but his brother was a vicious prick and a cokehead. He fed blow to every waitress at the Blue Mountain. Then he took them somewhere, fucked them and tortured them. He would tie them up and burn them with cigarettes. He told them he'd whack them if they ever said a word. They didn't dare tell the other waitresses. And they all dated Charles and lived to regret it. Charles was a sick fuck and I never liked him much. So that kind of goes to show you the kind of guy that Charles Carnigli was. He was a ruthless killer uh, alongside with his brother. And, you know, again, when we look back at the gaudy reign, Joe Watts was obviously a major killer uh, and Charlie and John Carnigley were major killers. Um, and, Ultimately, we don't really talk much about them because they like the Roy DeMayo's, but they were two that had to be mentioned. They were the chief killers for John Gotti. As always, thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. Uh, not a real long biography today, but one that was chocked filled with information. As always, make sure you follow us on Twitter at the Down 7 I also urge you, if you enjoy our Mafia content, please go check out our channel on YouTube. You can search us, just check out the sit down a mafia history Podcast. I want to thank again, all the great questions today, Uh, really good stuff, really high end. Um, And next week we'll be back with another episode um, and we'll keep it going here on the sit down. Um, I hope y'all had a good Memorial day, a good holiday. Uh, we're a little couple of days out uh, from the Memorial Day holiday, but I want to uh, wish everybody a great holiday nonetheless. Thanks everybody for listening. I am Jeff Nadeau, uh, and we will see you next week here on The Down.